Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, this is Sean Ramos from host of Vox's daily news podcast, Today Explained. But of course, I'm here once again to introduce Vox Conversations, where we're bringing you conversations between some of the brightest minds and smartest people we know. On today's show, once again, back by popular demand, Vox's Sean Illing, who's going to be talking about the little-known history of psychedelics and spirituality in the Western world with Brian Murarescu, author of The Immortality Key. They're going to be answering some questions that my mom is maybe not going to be thrilled about. Did psychedelic drugs play an important role in the rise and spread of Christianity? And could they save the church today? Here's Sean Illing. We've heard a lot of talk about psychedelics in recent years. It's everywhere, in mainstream books, in popular science journals, in TV shows and movies. We're in the middle of something like a psychedelic renaissance, and I'm extremely here for it. I've covered the psychedelic beat for Vox for a while now, writing about the underground scene and some of the recent breakthroughs in the scientific research on psychedelics. But today, we're going to look to the past with a guest who has opened up a fascinating new discussion about the historical role of psychedelics. His name is Brian Murarescu, author of The Immortality Key, a fantastic new book about what he calls The Secret History of Psychedelics. This is really an old-fashioned detective story like The Da Vinci Code, except it doesn't suck and it's about psychedelics. Brian has a really unusual background, as you might expect. He's an international lawyer who's done a lot of work in the medical marijuana space. He actually represented the first pro athlete in the U.S. to seek a therapeutic exemption for cannabis. But he also holds a classics degree from Brown. And about 12 years ago, he began a very strange research adventure that eventually led to this book. And man, this book is strange and brimming with all kinds of insights and stories. But the idea that really caught my attention was this. Brian argues, and he backs it up with a ton of evidence, that psychedelics were fairly central to the spread of early Christianity, which makes it an important part of the story of Western civilization. Yeah, I know it sounds amazing. So I decided to bring him on the show and talk about what he learned and why it matters today. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So tell me, Brian, was Christianity founded on a psychedelic sacrament? Hmm, that's the million-dollar question I spent 12 years of my life trying to find out uh, and was grilled by my friend Dr. Charlie Stang at Harvard University uh, last week. I, I think there's some very compelling evidence for the use of ritual psychedelics in antiquity. I mean, I, I spent all these years really trying to tease out the hard scientific data for the use of that kind of sacrament. And what I think that we have at the moment are some very compelling clues. And what I think we need to do is put some funding and attention into more research like this. And I have a feeling that more organic scientific evidence is bound to emerge from these chalices of the ancient Mediterranean. Let's back up a little bit to the beginning of the story you're telling. And we should say at the top, this is a story about psychedelics and Christianity in early Greece. It is not a full history of the use of psychedelics in human culture. If it was, it'd be going back you know, thousands more years, probably to the Amazon. And so just so people know, this is the story you're telling uh, and it's focused. It's not the entire story. 
That's right. I, I, I somewhat artificially begin uh, with the agricultural revolution. You know, the first half of my book is very much dedicated to beer, partly because I'm a big fan of beer. And the second half of the book is dedicated to wine, but, but, but really beer and wine as the vehicles or the carriers of these psychedelic sacraments. Uh, so we can trace beer back 12, 13,000 years, which is why I kind of begin the book there. But you know, there's lots of research pointing to the potential use of ritual psychedelics and, and other drugs tens of thousands of years, if not potentially hundreds of thousands, and potentially e even into other species that preceded us. It, it, it's fairly uh, well-documented in the animal kingdom. So this could have been a millions-years-old story, but we start with the end of the last ice age. Well, tell me about the role of psychedelics in early Greek culture. How was it used? What did it mean? I want to be careful about the use of, of the word psychedelics. You know, when, when you look into the ancient records, you do find pretty compelling resources for this pharmacopoeic knowledge and, and this, this expertise with the botanical landscape. And I think a lot of it goes either unacknowledged or just untranslated in some cases. Like in the case of Galen, the personal physician to Marcus Aurelius, there's just thousands and thousands of pages of, of pharmacy and pharmacology discussing all kinds of things like animal-derived toxins. And you need expertise to be able to decipher some of that stuff. And so, you know, the, the, the volume that we have of Galen is like 22 different independent volumes of over a thousand pages each. They haven't been translated to English. Uh, you know, so, so part of this is kind of looking through the record to see what's there and what's not. But, but even when you do take the very first look, what you see are wine, for example, being routinely mixed with all kinds of plants and herbs and toxins, which is why I focus so much on things like beer and wine, because their beer and wine was very different from ours. It was routinely mixed with all these interesting ingredients that we wouldn't do today necessarily. What was the Temple of Eleusis and what happened there? So I refer to the Temple of Eleusis as the, the spiritual capital of the ancient world. It exists from about 1500 BC to the 4th century AD. It calls to the best and brightest of both Athens and Rome for close to 2,000 years. And I sometimes say it's kind of like the real religion of the ancient Greeks. I mean, the civilization that produced the democracy and arts and sciences and philosophy and all the rest of it, they had this temple dedicated to a goddess and her daughter, Demeter and Persephone. And they would make this long pilgrimage from Athens, 13 miles northwest up to Eleusis. They would drink this magic potion called the Kukion. And uh, what little testimony survived, because this was all secret, speaks about this epiphanic beatific vision that these initiates witnessed in this altered state that somehow turned them into immortals. So you went there as a human being and you walked away convinced of your immortality and vouchsafed in some kind of, of, of afterlife. And again, we don't know what was going on because this was largely secret. But the, the testimony that did survive universally speaks of a vision. And so it raises the question, what kind of vision was this? Was this some spectacle, some theatrical performance? Or was there something in that magic potion, the Kukion, that, that produced this vision? Or some combination of all of the above? And so in 1978, uh, this, this relatively controversial theory claimed that this magic potion was some kind of primitive beer that was spiked with ergot. And ergot is the natural fungus from which Albert Hoffmann himself was able to synthesize LSD all the way back in the 1930s. And so it's a very elegant idea because this ergot, you know, grows on the grains. And if our relationship with the grains, you know, barley, wheat, rye, if it, if it goes all the way back 12, 13,000 years, like I was mentioning, it stands to reason that it's at least possible that some of that, you know, again, naturally infected grain could have made its way into a very intentional potion to create these visions. But, uh, you know, there was no hard scientific data to really prove that one way or the other for decades and decades. What you're describing now and what you describe in the book is, you know, it's this kind of religion of the elite, right? And so these, these statesmen and these philosopher types would usher off to this, this mysterious temple in, in the dark of night and, and participate in this kind of ceremony or a ritual. Do we know much ab about that ritual and that ceremony? What it looked like? Was this a very individual thing? Was it uh, a, a group thing? Do we even know? From what we can reconstruct, and again, we don't know the you know, sequence by sequence turn of events, but we know there was some kind of pilgrimage. We know there was the ritual consumption of this beverage. Uh, we know that the rites continue over, over many days and nights. And we know it all culminates in this vision, which uh, the professor at Boston University, Carl Ruck, talks about the culminating experience of a lifetime. I mean, you, you went to Eleusis 
to learn how to conquer death and, and nothing less. This was like the height of philosophy for them. So even though we can't reconstruct all the details, we do know that it was a communal event. Uh, so Demeter's temple, for example, could have accommodated up to about 3,000 initiates at any one time. But again, we don't really know what was happening in there aside from this spectacular vision. And, you know, to, to gain entrance to that was considered, you know, a really worthwhile affair. It called to people from all over the Greek-speaking world. In fact, the, the only uh, criteria for entry were the ability to speak some Greek and the fact that you hadn't committed murder. So if you could check off those two boxes, technically, you were invited into this temple. But, but I mean, you're quite right. It was kind of reserved for those who had the time and the expense to really go through this process, which could have been a couple of years. I mean, at least 18 months preparing for this once-in-a-lifetime event. So it's a, it was something very, very special. Were women allowed? Yes. And as a matter of fact, originally, the mysteries of Eleusis, these rites uh, were engineered specifically for women. It was an exclusively a rite of female initiation. It was only later that men were allowed, um, which is a theme that I found again and again in my book, not just at Eleusis, but with the mysteries of Dionysus, for example, uh, the Greek god of ecstasy and wine and theater and madness. Uh, you know, the majority of his followers uh, were also female, or at least female-led. And, and I think some of this also seeps in to paleo-Christianity, which I explore in the second half of the book. Well, we're definitely going to turn to Christianity in, in a second, but I definitely want to talk a little bit more about the role that this played in in Greece, because you know Christianity didn't spring up in a vacuum. It is drenched in, in Greek culture. It is very much of Greek culture. And so it, it's hard to understand the early story of Christianity without understanding this Greek soil out of which it, it, it sprang. I mean, do you think that this idea of God, at least in the Greek world, arose out of these psychedelic encounters? I mean, is it is it possible? Is it fair to say that the Greeks may have found God when they found psychedelics? See that that's that that's a big word that this God. Um, and I'm not even sure what it what it means today. But again, when when you look into the testimony from Eleusis or the other mystery cults, I mean, we we talk a lot about Eleusis as you know the epicenter of this spiritual universe. But there were also those mysteries of Dionysus. And there were other mysteries I don't even mention that much about in the book, like the mysteries of Isis and Osiris from Egypt or, or Addis and the, these Near Eastern fertility cults. I mean, there, there were lots of different kinds of religions, cults that, you know, that were all directed towards some kind of very immediate experience of the divine. So I'm not sure if you call it God or, you know, the, the mysteries of the cosmos, but, you know, these things were revered for their ability to produce, you know, a very immediate firsthand experience of the mysteries of the cosmos, for lack of a better phrase. And so I, I do think that, that these initiates went to Eleusis or participated in these cults to find something like what we would call God. And again, I'm, I'm not even sure what that, what that term means. This period of Greek history is, is kind of explosion in science and art and philosophy and the humanities and all the rest. Do you think that those things happen without the Temple of Eleusis and the use of psychedelics in the way you're describing now? See, again, it's, it's another big question. And I spend a couple of pages in the book talking about the death of Eleusis. And so it's, it's only in, in the death of this temple and, and these rites that survive for 2,000 years that I think we get a sense of what it really meant to the ancient Greeks. And I talk about this, this prophecy of sorts that was recorded by an ancient Greek historian. And, uh, and he includes the testimony of this Roman hierophant, this Roman priest and statesman, this aristocrat, Praetextatus. And, and as these mysteries are about to be squelched by the newly Christianized Roman Empire, Praetextatus is recorded, again, in the 4th century AD, so a few centuries into the Christian era. He's recorded as saying, essentially, to kill these mysteries is to kill us. And there, there was the sensibility that whatever was found in Eleusis was the key, was, was the glue that, that held ancient Greece together. And, and not just Greek civilization, uh, but human civilization more broadly. The, the, the idea that whatever was, was encountered there was, was a salve to humanity and really kept the species in check and kept us in balance with nature. And I, and I know that all sounds crazy, and I don't think we can say that democracy was birthed from the temple at Eleusis or these arts and sciences, but, you know, Eleusis as a cipher for the irrational. 
and the esteem that the Greeks held for the irrational, whether it was through these visionary cults or through these contemplative, meditative exercises that are very much part and parcel of Western civilization. You know, for, for the Greeks, I think there was the sensibility that that life was far more mysterious uh, than it seems at first blush, and it is worth investigating at sort of a very scientific level. Well, the title of your book, The Immortality Key, comes from this kind of mystical idea drawn from these these Greek psychedelic ceremonies, which is this idea that you can die before you die in order to live or something like that. What, what does that mean? What did it mean to them? So I titled the book The Immortality Key, not trying to signify that psychedelics themselves are the key to uncovering the nature of reality and the identity of the soul and our relationship to the cosmos and what held antiquity together. But the key, as I see it, is exactly what you reference. And, and it's captured in a plaque, actually, at the St. Paul's Monastery at Mount Athos in Greece, one of the holiest sites of, of Christian orthodoxy. And in Greek, it goes like this, an pethanis, brin pethanis, denta pethanis, otan pethanis. If you die before you die, you won't die when you die. And so, again, when we talk about Eleusis or the rites of Dionysus or all these mystery cults, what we're talking about is ritualized technology and, and ceremonial ways of creating a death and rebirth experience. It's always about death and rebirth for some reason. The idea that you die to the ordinary conception of the self and are reborn into a grander vision of, of who you are as an individual, what it means to be part of this species, what it means to inhabit this planet in the starry cosmos. Um, you know, this, this is really textbook Platonism, that, that things are not as they seem. And only by dying to your imperfect vision, your imperfect way of seeing things, can you be reborn into this celestial vision. Is Plato the most famous psychonaut to have attended this ceremony? <laughs> well, yeah. There's a lot of big names, but is he the biggest? He's, he's certainly one of the biggest. And he talks about the blessed sight and vision that he witnessed at Eleusis in this state of perfection, which is one of my favorite lines. But, you know, people didn't, again, this was all secret, and it was forbidden to talk about this stuff under the penalty of death. So what we do have are these sort of uh, nebulous phrases that survived into the record, not just from Plato. Aristotle talks about people going there not to learn something, but to experience something. You have Pindar writing about this. Uh, you have Sophocles, Cicero in the first century, uh, Marcus Aurelius later on, who actually rebuilds the temple at Eleusis uh, when it's uh, nearly destroyed by the barbarians. So, I mean, this, this, again, this for centuries and centuries, the best and brightest are going there to witness something. Okay, friends, let's take a quick break. And when we're back... Linking early Christian sacraments with psychedelics can be, well, controversial. I'll ask Brian, who himself is Catholic, what it was like to explore the complicated role drugs played in the spread of Christianity. That's after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
I'm curious how you came to this topic, Brian. You're you're a Catholic. You're very open about that in the book, but you also approached this very dispassionately, and you, you followed the facts and the evidence wherever it led, no matter where it led. Did you have any misgivings about about any of this along the way? Of course, I, I still have misgivings. I'm I'm trying to figure all this out. At, at the very end of the book, I talk about you know my my own identity crisis. In a sense, there's this collective identity crisis that I mentioned at the very beginning of the book. You know, are we Greeks or are we Christians? There there's this narrative that the Greeks gave us all these rational intellectual things that we you know happily inherited from antiquity, um, including the way we structure our government, for example. But that Christianity came along and and saved our soul. Right. And they filled us with faith and love and all the rest of it. But that, that's kind of an inadequate story for the history of Western civilization. I think that, you know, the, the Greeks were far more insightful about the, the nature of life and, and the meaning thereof. And then here I am going down these rabbit holes when the only reason I picked up Latin and Greek in the first place was from the Jesuits. I got this scholarship to study the classics when I was a teenager in high school and wound up studying it in college too. But, you know, it's, it's never lost on me that all these questions I'm asking are really birthed by the Jesuits who always encourage me to ask these deep questions, you know, and, and, and what value is faith if it goes untested? So, you know, I took all that training, both in the, the pagan ancient Greek world and the Christian world, which also existed in this milieu of ancient Greece. And I, I'm trying to put it all together. I mean, both in terms of like a historical narrative, but my own my own life. I mean, you know, after 13 years of Catholic school, I got I have big questions about why this religion is the way it is and how the, this carpenter's son from Galilee managed to spawn the biggest religion the world has ever known. I mean, these are huge questions that we've never asked and we've been fighting about for 2,000 years, which is why, you know, there is no one form of Christianity. You can look around and find something like 33,000 denominations. And I think that was the case at the very beginning too. It seems to me there was always disagreement over who exactly this Jesus was, you know, what the Eucharist was supposed to be, what the message is. At the root of it all is love, as I read the Gospels, and the success and spread of love. And, and I'm trying to figure out a way that we can recapture whatever, you know, re-enchanted the Roman Empire a couple thousand years ago, because whatever it was, was something phenomenal. Did you get any pushback from religious authorities? I mean, I don't know if you intended to rewrite the history of Christianity here, but you kind of did. <laughs> Just a little bit, right? Um, I'm trying to snuff out the details of early Christianity. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the Eucharist meant to the earliest people who would have celebrated that. And at the time, I, I don't think there was a sharp division between paganism and Christianity. As a matter of fact, I mean, th this whole book kind of sits in this landscape called the Pagan Continuity Hypothesis, which Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself wrote about in 1950. I mean, th th this stuff is known to biblical scholars, and th this stuff is known to historians of religion, but I don't think most people are, are aware of the world into which Christianity was born. And again, the more and more you take a look at it, the, the more this Pagan Continuity Hypothesis made sense to me. I mean, psychedelics are not. But if psychedelics were in fact involved in at least some of the earliest Greek-speaking communities, and for at least some of them, there was this psychedelic vision, I mean, I, I think it does raise big questions for today when the Eucharist has lost its value for many people. And I'm not talking about my, myself. I mean, I quote a Pew poll that says something like, two-thirds of American Catholics do not believe they are literally drinking the blood of Christ during the Mass, which to me is like the central doctrine of Catholicism. And if if that's not capturing people today, it, it just raises big questions for me about, you know, the meaning of religion in people's lives and the meaning of faith and spirituality. And oddly enough, I find people having very mystical religious experiences in these clinical psilocybin trials. Um, and that that's what really kind of got me onto this hunt. What was the most compelling evidence you found that, in fact, the earliest Christian sacraments were a psychedelic brew. I mentioned before that I'm always looking for that hard scientific data. So the first half of my book really hangs on on one, what I consider a pretty spectacular find that just largely went ignored for, for 20 years. So I, I was looking for evidence to support that controversial theory from 1978 that the, the Greeks were drinking some kind of LSD-like beer, for lack of a better phrase. And so I went digging into these archaeobotanical journals looking for any scrap of evidence for exactly that and, and wound up finding it. Uh, I mean, it took many, many years, but turns out there was this Greek colony in Spain, what today is Spain, 
of all places. There was a Greek presence there, and there was a Greek sanctuary pretty much in the middle of nowhere at this farmstead called uh, Mas Castellar de Pontos. And in the second century BC, there was something like mystery rites happening in this very Greek sanctuary in Iberia, of all places. And in this sanctuary where they found lots of remnants of the mysteries, like, you know, terracotta heads that seem to have belonged to Demeter or Persephone, and an altar, a very Greek altar that came from mainland Greece, they also found these little ceremonial vessels, uh, these tiny chalices. I mean, it looks like a holy grail. It's really weird. And in this two-inch high chalice, it was tested under optical microscopy and turned up the evidence for an ancient beer. That was spiked with ergot. I mean, it, it, it fits precisely this crazy theory from 1978. And the only reason no one's really heard of it is because this find was published in Catalan, the language of the archaeologist who's been on site there since 1990 and is still there today. And so I spent a couple years, you know, hounding her and, and just trying to diligence the hell out of this find. And turns out, I mean, it's standing up. And so, you know, based on that one archaeobotanical find, I really went out of my way to find something similar that could fit within Christianity. And lo and behold, also from 20 years ago, outside Pompeii, there was this pharmacy, an ancient pharmacy that was unearthed. And inside the wine jars that were found therein was a really kind of unique witchy wine that was mixed with what seems to be um, opium, cannabis, and henbane, which is one of these very hallucinogenic solanaceous plants. Um, and in there also were the bones of lizards. I mean, so like a very, a potion straight out of Macbeth is sitting there in Pompeii, dated to 79 AD, exactly when the first generations of Christians would have been showing up south of Rome to celebrate the earliest versions of the Mass. And so, you know, it doesn't tie this psychedelic tradition to Christianity specifically. As I told the, the folks at, at Harvard Divinity last week, what I think it is is proof of concept that the more testing we do and the more excavations we're involved in, I think we're going to find more organic evidence that does in fact tie this kind of tradition to the earliest uh, Christians. Do we have any sense of, of how many Christians or mystical Christians or Christian sects might have been experimenting with this psychedelic sacrament? Was it was this a, an underground thing or is it a relatively small number of pagan Christians at the time? Do we do we know? I mean, we don't really know. I don't think we'll ever know. I mean, at, at the very end of my book, I, I you know, I'm honest about the fact, you know, I don't think this was a majority of early Christians. Um, so, you know, that puts us somewhere between 1% and 49%. I just, I, I just don't know. And as we turn up more data, we might get an idea. If you look to the literature that survived from the church fathers, they do talk about these heretical Christians that we now call the Gnostics. And there were all kinds of different, you know, branches and sects of these heretical Christians in, in the church fathers' opinion. And we do have some written evidence of them using drugs. We see in the Greek, the word pharmaka, drug, for example, is used over and over by, by one church father in describing this alternative Eucharist that was used in an alternative mass by these alternative Christians. And there are other church fathers who write about this, but like everything in antiquity, we're just, you know, we're, we're grasping at straws at some point. There's a figure I mentioned in my book that only about 1% of the total literary output from antiquity has survived. So, you know, we lost 99% of all the data that could provide us some clues and, and get a better handle on this stuff, which is, you know, part of the fun and the mystery of looking into history, I guess. Why did some of the religious authorities at the time suppress this? I mean, this is clearly something that they did not condone and did not want spreading. Why? I mean, I, I think it's the same answer as why Gnosticism itself disappeared. And, and again, as I was describing about Eleusis, you know, Gnosticism itself, this heretical version of Christianity, also disappears at around the same time in the fourth century AD. And now there, there's basically two ways to, to look at that. One, because the church fathers were, I don't know, frightened of the idea of people being able to mediate or, or to curate their experience with the divine in a way that obviated the, the structure of the church, right? If you can go and find God in a glass of wine, what do you need the, the priest and the bishop for? You know, on the other hand, um, and Elaine Pagels writes about this, the, the scholar of early Christianity at Princeton, these cults don't lend themselves well to organized religion. And so, you know, none of this stuff is written down. Eleusis, for example, was an oral tradition. Um, you know, so when, when we're looking at why these cults disappeared, I think part of the reason is the fact that these were 
consciously curated as oral traditions. I mean, they're, they're bound to disappear eventually unless there's a strong structure or, or bureaucracy supporting them. And in that sense, you know, the exoteric church did what it did to survive. And it brought in congregants and it made this, this faith a practical living tradition. And, and that's what won the day. Well, Alan Watts, who you quote in the book, famously said that you know a, a popular outbreak of mysticism might establish a democracy in the kingdom of heaven. And it seems the church preferred an aristocracy. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, and it, again, if you look at those early centuries of the faith, it's, it's easy to explain why women, for example, and potentially drugs were excluded from this bureaucracy of the church. I mean, it just didn't belong. Um, and it, it just, it picked up where the Roman Empire left off, you know, so, so Christianized Roman state apparati just really stepped into the shoes of the pagan Roman emperors and kept marching forward. I mean, that, that's, it's as simple as that. There weren't that many female Roman emperors, okay? So as a result, uh, we haven't seen any female popes or any female cardinals and archbishops, etc., uh, for 2,000 years now, by the way. You know, the church that was born in the 3rd, 4th centuries AD also was just, it was a creature of the political environment into which this faith was born, which was largely patriarchal, male-dominated, and I argue somewhat anti-drug or anti the mixing of these potions in a way that threatened the consecratory power of the priest. You mentioned the role of women just now, and while they may have been excluded from the formal church, they were very much involved in these psychedelic ceremonies. Women were charged with, with creating and serving these brews or these concoctions. And when you take a sensitive look at early Christianity, you know, women were a part of this movement and they're mentioned in the Gospels and they're mentioned in Paul's letters. Uh, the very first convert in Europe uh, was a woman, Lydia is mentioned, and she was followed by two other women. And in Ephesus, it was Priscilla. And in Rome, uh, there was a lot of women mentioned in the New Testament. You have Mary and Trifina and Trifosa and Persis, and this woman, Junia, who's described as the foremost among the apostles. I mean, so it's not like women weren't involved. I mean, I don't really understand how they're, you know, ousted from the, the hierarchy of, of the church, um, aside from what I explained about uh, just the, the, the general state of the Roman Empire at the time. But, you know, if, if drugs were involved, again, you do see women in some of the, um, the early data that, that survives, like in these underground catacombs uh, where Christianity found a home in the first few centuries after Jesus. So remember, there were no physical churches. There was no brick and mortar basilicas until Constantine and the fourth century. What you have before that are people meeting in relatively small groups, literally underground in these catacombs or in private homes. And what you find again and again is you're entering into the female sphere of the domesticated mass. It was happening in dining rooms. And that was the women's purview. And it was also women who were mixing the wine in these strange ceremonies that would happen underground where the living would go to meet the dead. Um, and this became part of the early Eucharistic ceremonies, these Eucharistic vigils that would happen overnight. And you see frescoes of women consecrating this wine. And so it's an open question how many drugs were involved in this, but I don't think it's an open question that, that women were really critical to the success of early Christianity. We're going to take another short break, but when we're back, how different might Christianity look today if the mystics had become the defining voices in the church? Would we even recognize the faith today? I asked the author of The Immortality Key, Brian Bororescu, after the break. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
if these Gnostics or, or mystics or whatever you want to call them became the defining voices of Christianity, or at least played a much larger role in the early period of Christianity, how different might the faith look today? That's the question I raise. And, and, and I think about that myself. It would look different. I'm not sure it would have survived the way it did. I'm not sure that, you know, a, a female-led mystical Christianity would have inflamed the imagination of the planet and, and would have come to colonize and do all these things that the patriarchal church uh, did. And yet that, that patriarchy managed to do what they considered was God's work, which was spreading this, uh, this, this gospel to the Americas and to Africa and Asia, often at the expense of indigenous people who were caught in the crossfire. Um, I feel like a female-led religion may have looked a bit different. And today, if you think about you know, a mystical Christianity, I think that that's going to be very different. Like, I mean, if you're the kind of person who's attracted to psychedelics and, and this esoteric lore and literature, you may not find yourself you know, participating in the Sunday Eucharist every week. You're the kind of person who might be attracted to a different contemplative version of the faith. And it, and it was a version of the faith that I learned from the Jesuits, for example, and this concept of like pilgrimage and retreat and all these monastic communities that have been with the faith more or less since the beginning. And I think there's an opportunity there that even if we're, you know, reanalyzing the history of this faith, I think there, there is a place for this contemplative mysticism uh, even today. I mean, I identified as a, an atheist, a fairly militant atheist, actually, for, for a long time. And psychedelics upended that for me in, in pretty profound ways. God as an idea never registered. It still doesn't register, but, but God as an experience does. And it seems these early mystics understood that quite well. And either the church didn't understand it or they did and didn't want the masses to. Yeah, I think... That's one of the sticky points. And I often quote Joe Campbell on that issue um, when, when trying to talk about what God is. I mean, there are those who read about God and who pray to God, and there are those who choose to experience God. And I'm not sure, you know, which portion of the population falls where, but I know that there are a lot of people like you and these volunteers in the clinical trials at Hopkins and NYU, for example, who claim to have experienced God, including atheists. I mean, I start my book with the testimony of Dinah Baser, one of these clinical volunteers in the psilocybin trials. And despite being an atheist, she describes her one and only experience of psilocybin as being bathed in God's love. And she uses that, that word God conscientiously. And so, again, I think when it comes to the experience of the divine, there are lots of people who are who are thirsty for that. And you know, if you're not drawn to the Bible or you're not drawn to organized religion, you know, maybe you're drawn to to something that I think also spoke to people in antiquity. And when you're looking at Eleusis or the rites of Dionysus or Paleo Christianity, the thing to me that binds them all is this this experience. Uh, exactly what Aristotle said: they didn't go to these rites to learn something. They went there to experience something. And, you know, a sensitive read of the Gospels kind of gives you the same message. Um, like in John's Gospel, Jesus doesn't say, you know, pray to me or think about me or worship me. He asks us to drink his blood. He asks us to do something. And in that act of consuming the sacrament, you thereby become divine. I mean, this is the great promise of the Mass in Christianity when you take a step back. And so when you put all these pieces together, I think what we're, what we're harping on is the idea of direct experience of the divine. Like you, I was raised Catholic, but it, it never really stuck. And one of the reasons was that the church always seemed to me so obviously about power. I mean, it's a human institution and human institutions are largely about their own preservation. And so I couldn't really see God there. I could only see humans using God. But the Christianity that you imagine in your book, the, the Christianity that could have been, that was snuffed out, that was extinguished by people who felt threatened by it, that's something I could connect with. I think it's something a lot of people could connect with. And I wonder if you do think that, that God in some sense needs to be saved from the church? And is psychedelics a tool for doing that, or one tool for doing that? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a big question. I mean, I think there are lots of people who find God in the church. And, and you know, I want to be clear. I, I, think, I think there are lots of people who find comfort in the Mass just the way it is, right? Whether it's in Catholicism or Orthodoxy or Protestantism or Evangelical Christianity, Mormonism. I mean, there, there's so many different threads to unwind here. And, and for many, many people, 
it works just fine. And there's a great sense of community and comfort. Um, and for lots of other people, and I mentioned the two thirds, for example, of American Catholics, you know, the whatever's happening at that climactic moment of the mass just isn't resonating the way it used to. So, you know, I'm not sure how this balance falls, but just like you, I mean, I think there are many who are interested in that direct experience. It could have been a very big part of the success of the early church. You know, we don't have 100% certainty over what was happening in those dining rooms and those catacombs of paleo-Christianity. It seems to me that something really intense and I, I would say mystical was happening there to bridge together these communities to the point where they would want to die for that faith. I mean, you know, risk being thrown to a lion uh, for professing faith in Jesus. It was There was something strange happening in those early centuries. And to recapture that, yeah, I think psychedelics in, in a responsible setting under rigorously controlled conditions, they, they seem to evoke mystical experiences in people when done right, when it's, you know, medically responsible and scientifically rigorous, and I would argue authentically sacred. It seems to me that there's a pathway to begin the spiritual journey, right? So not psychedelics as an end in themselves. I think that's meaningless, but as the beginning of a, of, of a life dedicated to introspection and to love of self and others, sure. I think um, from what I read from the clinical trials, I, I, I see a lot of evidence for that. I think that's right. I, I don't think psychedelics are a panacea. At best, they, they can throw open a door. And what happens after that is a big question. But I do think there are a lot of traditional religious types who, who might be uncomfortable with linking psychedelics to religion in any way. But it does seem like psychedelics could play a role in some kind of religious renaissance. Is, it, is that something you think much about? Are you hopeful about that possibility or what? Well, I went back and forth over how to title the opening chapter, which I call the, the New Reformation. Part of me sees what's happening today um, as, as an echo of, of Martin Luther and what was happening you know, 500 years ago. Every Reformation in religion or politics, et cetera, it's always about getting back to the source of something, right? Trying to, you know, to dust off the nonsense and get back to what drives people. The great hymn of the humanists, for example, was ad fontes, to, you know, to get back to the source. And so, you know, if psychedelics and this mystical vision of Christianity really was part of the early church, I mean, for me, the, the, these 12 years were trying to, again, answer my own identity crisis and to see what's real and what's not in the attempt to ad fontes, just get back to the source of what this stuff was. Um, you know, and every Reformation movement has a different way of doing that. For the Protestants wanted to get rid of the pomp and circumstance of the Catholic Church, the evangelicals wanted to get rid of what they didn't like about Protestantism and were just sola scriptura, you know, back to the word of God. And I think what we have now is the opportunity to really look at this with the lens of both religion and science. I went down this rabbit hole because of the psychopharmacology, the science coming out of the lab. And now where I end this journey, I think, is looking back into antiquity and these mystery cults as some really interesting sacred containers uh, to facilitate this psychedelic experience outside the laboratory, right? But, but something that is very much... Uh, a meaningful part of Western civilization. So not necessarily going into the jungles to to try ayahuasca or going out of your comfort zone for some people, but looking back into our own tradition in the West and finding out what may have motivated our ancestors. And if indeed psychedelics were a part of that, then I think history can also be a guide towards what comes in the future. How did this book change your view of psychedelics? I know you you had never done psychedelics when you started the book. I, I still think you haven't done any psychedelics unless that has changed. But did the experience of this book change how you thought about psychedelics? Do you still see psychedelics as a drug or as something else, some kind of, I don't know, spiritual technology? So I'm still a psychedelic virgin, proudly so. And, you know, part of that is just you know, very simple. I mean, this stuff is, is illegal, right? It's, you know, in Oregon just became the first jurisdiction in the country to decriminalize all drugs. And they're beginning to regulate psilocybin for therapeutic purposes. I don't think it'll be the last state, interestingly. So, you know, it's very weird that some of these historical clues are, are coming to light at a time when we're regaging our relationship with these drugs, which is kind of weird. And... I think where, where I land after all this research is the way that psychedelics used to be talked about before the war on drugs. And maybe we're coming back to that kind of sensibility. Um, like I was really blown away by some of the early testimony. You mentioned uh, Watts, for example. 
when I read Aldous Huxley writing the 1950s, I'm kind of blown away. Or when I read, you know, other early scholars like Houston Smith, uh, perhaps one of the most influential religious scholars of the 20th century. He was one of the uh, infamous participants in this Harvard psilocybin project in the early 1960s. And, you know, he describes his experience as like this powerful cosmic homecoming and later described his experience with mescaline as like plugging a toaster into a power line. Uh, you know, so before the war on drugs, these gentlemen scholars were writing openly about this stuff and and trying to figure out how these fit in society and um, in a really weird way, I think that we're, we're back in those waters and we're, we're trying to figure out what this means for the future of medicine, what it means for the future of religion, uh, philosophy, society at large. Um, and I think the next 10 years are, are going to prove to be really transformational, not just for the United States, but for, but for the rest of the world. What do you think it means for the future of religion, especially Christianity? I think there's a pathway to responsibly reincorporate some of this into Christianity. And, you know, again, if you're drawn to this kind of experience, you're probably drawn to a mystical version of the faith that you can absolutely find when you look at the, the Gnostic literature, for example, or when you do, you know, a really sensitive read of the Gospel of John. There, there's lots of great imagery and symbolism there. Um, you know, whether you're a believer or not, Christianity is not some monolithic thing. And I think there's room in the world's biggest religion for evolution, right? And for flexibility, there always has been. I mean, right now, psychedelics are taken inside um, ceremonies that consider themselves Christian or partly Christian. So if you think of the Native American church, I mean, that is at its core, this, this syncretism between Christianity and some of the indigenous worship and beliefs. You can look into South America, not far from where I'm sitting right now, by the way, in Brazil, you have the Santo Daime Church or the UDV, which is the Unial do Vegetal. And, and these are, you know, bona fide uh, religious communities that, that take ayahuasca, for example, as part of their religious sacrament. So instead of the wafer and wine, uh, they're consuming um, ayahuasca, which is this, you know, richly hallucinogenic, very powerful psychedelic, which contains DMT. So, you know, I don't, I don't think we're speculating too far when we think of, you know, how much can we extend the practice of psychedelics into Christianity because it's already happening. And I think that that may actually scale over time. Again, if, if, if it can be done in a, in a legal way, in a safe way, in a responsible way, I, I, I kind of see an opportunity for lots of young people, especially to be, to be drawn um, towards the best of what religion has to offer, which apart from that search for love and meaning is this community and this container to help orient this experience because I don't think psychedelics are for everybody, by no means. That's why I haven't done them. But if you're drawn to this, um, I think there's lots of lessons actually in the history of religion and organized religion for kind of making meaning out of this and learning how to be of service to the sacrament. Well, I mean, even the the Gospel of Thomas says that the kingdom of heaven is here, that it's spread upon the earth and people do not see it. I don't know if psychedelics are the answer here, but they sure as hell help. <laughs> well, they help some people some of the time. I think that's right. And I mean, the, the, real, yeah, that's fair. the, the real value, again, to quote Houston Smith, you know, it's not about altered states, but it's about altered traits. You know, so I, I don't know what you experienced in your psychedelic uh, journey, but if it makes you a better person, right? If it elicits all these pro-social behaviors that they're finding in these clinical trials, you know, you know kindness and generosity and self-sacrifice. If it if it makes you curious about the world and and plugs you back into the real world, then I think that's the value of psychedelics, like any mystical experience. You know, whether that's fasting or or chanting or or going on a vipassana retreat, you know, for a week or so. I think the point of all this is to come back to reality, a more you know realized human being who's there to be of service. I mean, again, for me, it begins and ends with service. The Jesuits taught me to be a man for others, and you know, if psychedelics can help us be men and women for others, then then I see a very powerful tool there. You spend an enormous amount of time on this project, more than. 12 years. What do you hope it achieves in the world? Hmm. You know, part of me feels very guilty for, <laughs> for being able to, to dedicate time to this. I mean, this is, you know, it, it's a luxury, frankly, to study something that <laughs> has no market value. You know, I studied Latin and Greek, which was just nonsense in college. And I, I went off to law school for that reason, because I didn't, you know, want to be a professor and there was no marketable skills there. Um, but I didn't want to leave antiquity behind. And so like, you know, part of me just really wants to educate, you know, and just talk about my experience with the humanities and, and the sciences and, and this fun stuff. I mean, you know, there are genuine mysteries out there in the world. And anyone can be a part of it. You don't need to be a PhD or an MD to take part in this stuff. 
you know, there's so much literature in so many places to visit and people to talk to. And I honestly say to people that, you know, for, for me, this was just, you know, my own search for identity. This, this was my own little private quest. And so if, if it means that, that, that people take something away from it, like a, you know, a renewed interest in the classics, for example, I mean, it's a total bonus. Um, I'm trying to keep these, these mysteries alive for a new generation because there are no answers at the end of the day. You know, we, we each bring something different to this. And so part of what I hope this spawns is just love for history um, and love for the, the mysteries we've been trying to crack for thousands of years. Yeah, and look, I'll just, you know, on a personal note, I'll just say, I wouldn't say that psychedelics have made me a religious person, but they did make me far less certain of everything. And, you know, look, I get up every morning and I, I pray. And I've, I've never did that in my entire life. And I do it, I have a daily prayer every day now. And that started with one of these, you know, kind of profound encounters. And, you know, the spiritual but not religious community is the fastest growing religious community, at least in the States right now. And you know, psychedelics may be a bridge between that and what we typically think of as religion. I love how you how you put that, what we typically think of. I mean, and, and I use that in my subtitle, the religion with no name, you know, for, for a reason, because religion is is protected by the First Amendment. I mean, th- these are things that are enshrined at the birth of the United States. You know, it's there there is no freedom for the expression of spirituality. There is religion out there that goes to the, you know, the very heart of Western civilization. And I think we all have the right to investigate what really motivated the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and the first Christians and the things that, that motivated the founders of the United States, who all read classics, by the way, or, you know, most of them. And so I like the idea of keeping these traditions alive at a time when Latin and Greek are not very popular for obvious reasons. And I think there is religion to be found there. It might not be what you think of as religion or Christianity, et cetera, but there are really deep, you know, mystical tales to be unwound here. And so I, I think that's, that, that's what still interests me about this. Well, it's a hell of a story, an amazing, largely unknown history. And it's a great book and it was a great pleasure to finally talk to you about it. So thank you so much for being here, Brian. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Vox Conversations. It was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Jovzdowska. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. Music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is our executive producer and editorial director of Vox Podcasts. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, let us know that too. We're curious to know what you think of it. You can get in touch at Vox Conversations at Vox.com. Again, send us an email to voxconversations at Vox.com. Or if you just want to like let a rave review rip, you know, you know where to do that. Wherever you listen, there's a little app, there's a little place where you can say it, say something nice. Thank you so much.